This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have a treat for you. I have a conversation with John Brewster from The Angels to share with you. Now, I appreciate that many of my listeners in North America and Europe will be unfamiliar with John, but he is one of the most important guitarists to emerge from Australia throughout the 1970s and 80s, which is really saying something given that he came out in an era that included ACDC and he's got some cool ACDC stories to share with us in this chat. Now the catalyst for the conversation though is a very small tour that he is doing with his brother and also the launch of a new EP titled Lives of Grace. It was released on February 24 and it features four tracks under the Brewster Brothers moniker, including a new recording of a classic Angels tune. Now, because I play covers myself, I'm fairly familiar with the group's material. So we talk all about that and the audience response and reaction and the enduring legacy, if you like, of his music. We dive deep into his approach to guitar playing. That's interesting. And something else, we talk about Oz Rock and indeed the Angels influence on music in America that eventually spawned grunge. Okay, so you'll hear him talk about some very familiar names. I won't say here now, I want you to listen to the chat and find out who it is that he's been spoken to, he's spoken to and who's been in the audience at Angel's shows. Very successful and prominent musicians from the world of grunge, let me assure you. there's some other pretty interesting topics in here that were covered too, such as the band The Party Boys. They were big for a moment, it's fair to say, and that group also featured Alan Lancaster from the Status Quo. So I talked to John about his friendship with Alan and also The Party Boys. Yeah, it's a far-ranging conversation, this one here, and uh, I haven't listened to a lot of conversations with John, but for the person who's listening who is very familiar with the angels and john i think you're going to get a lot out of it but in particular if you're unfamiliar with the angels and john this is a very good introduction and i hope it inspires you to investigate deeper on that note i have picked one of the most iconic australian tunes to launch the conversation so i wanted to play a tune and i've picked take a long line or long line as I write it down on my set list whenever we're playing it. I play it most of the nights that I play. It's a killer tune. And here it is. Once it's done, we'll dive into the chat. I should add, we can only play that if you're listening via the podcast apps. Unfortunately, I can't play music on YouTube. Anyway, either way, let's get to it.
Here he is. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Mate, How we're you? keeping you busy, are we? You know, with all the interviews and everything else and jet setting. <laughs> yeah. I've been, uh, yeah, the band's been really busy. It's been uh, you know, fantastic. We're doing Byron Bay Blues Fest next week. Yeah. So let me see. Have you got me right? I've got right you. There? Yep, I've got you. I can see alert. I can see you clear, clear as clear as bell, clear as daylight. There you go. That's a bit of saying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an important point, actually. That one because your music is beloved across Australia, as I'm as I'm sure you're aware. But it is the enduring success and the the fact that your music is such a part of <laughs> the Australian psyche. Does that impress you or surprise you in any way? Um. It, it certainly impresses me, and uh, yeah, I mean, yes, in a sense, it surprises me because what what surprises me and have has for years is the number of young people that come to our shows, hmm. uh, and I'm talking about you know as young as like 18, you know. Uh, I, I never forget uh, we, last time we did the Governor Hindmarsh, there was some, there was a whole bunch of young people down the front, and they were, uh, they were like about. I don't even think they knew each other, about five guys and about five girls, and they were right down the front and we were doing the Dark Room album, mm. which means that some of the songs are kind of um, rare songs really, mm. and and these people were singing along with the words to every song. Um, so, you know, so, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of a surprise. Um, but I think... One of the reasons why we've had this longevity is that with the songs we wrote kind of still to me sound like cutting edge. I don't think they sound like they they belong in another era so much. Um, and also I think that bands always uh, pride itself on being a really good live act. Bloody oath, yeah. I you know, play, play covers. Like we yeah, yeah, I we, know, yeah. yeah. Sorry, you go. Yeah. No, I was just going to say we play like we mean it. We love it, you know, that, that that's the thing, you know. Uh, if if I didn't love it as much as I do, I'd probably be hanging a guitar up and mowing mm. the lawn or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mow the yeah. lawn anyway. <laughs> I know the feeling, mate. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> what I was saying was, I play covers, and look, I've played Long Line, uh, No Secrets, and for a very long time now, as you can appreciate, every cover band in the country, certainly in regional areas, particularly in Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia. We absolutely have to play Am I Going to See Your Face Again? Because um, <laughs> if we don't, we get stuff thrown at us or we get abused basically <laughs> toward the end of the night. It's either that or Rage Against the Machines um, killing in the name of. I love it. So so I'm, I'm a bassist, as I said, but I, I'm, I might have mentioned, but uh, I also play guitar and guitarists rarely get the nuance of your playing. This is what I've noticed when I'm playing with people in a band because I've studied your playing, had the headphones on and gone into it because you're very different to Malcolm and Angus. You've got your own technique and your own style, but it is all you. Now, as a bassist, I really appreciate that you don't rush the beat and in this way you lean into the beat, especially when you're playing very fast. That's what I've liked about you. It's just this almost James Hetfield-esque down-picking with the occasional up-picking and the like. So do, do you agree with what I've said and and is this commentary yeah. that you've had before you? Yeah. Yeah, that we call it. I don't know, you know, quite why where it happened from, but we call it the Nick Nicks. Mm. Um, but the thing about it is that it's actually loud, soft, loud, soft, loud, soft. It's not even meter. 
you don't go da 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 da. It's da 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 da. Right? It's like yeah. it's got it's got a lilt to it. Um, um, yeah, and so we based a lot of our songs on that kind of thing. Uh, and I think one of the reasons we did is we were in the well, we got into it. But the the other thing is that we wanted to have point of difference between us and ACDC because we were in the same record company, you know. We used to hang out together mm-hmm. and we'd be there for their, some of their recording sessions and vice versa. And so we just wanted to have a, you know, to develop our own style. And it took a little while to do that, you know, because we came out of came out of, out of being a jug band, you know, mm-hmm. where, I, you know, Rick played the washboard and, you know, we had banjos and guitars and kazoos and harmonicas and all that kind of stuff, and it was a lot of fun. The joke band was a lot of fun. But then to to, to form a, a rock band, we had to kind of learn how to be a rock band and and certainly influenced by ACDC. But, you know, they became really good friends of ours. And, I mean, I, I remember hanging out in hotel rooms with Matt, with Malcolm, you know, trading, yeah. trading ideas. Um they were wonderful days and days we'll never forget, you know, the wonderful days of working with Harry Vanner and George Young. Um, uh, and there's plenty of memories, mate. We've been around for a while. We're celebrating 50 years next year. I know, it's amazing, yeah. Mm. It's amazing to think of it. You're the band that when we were kids and we used to go on these road trips that all Aussie families used to do, they don't do it so much anymore, but you go into a petrol station or a truck stop and you'd see your cassettes. Remember those cassettes they used to sell beside yeah. the you'd see I your do. cassettes? You'd see your yeah. cassettes in there. And I think that's where my earliest memories of the band actually come from. But I'm gonna I'm gonna do a bit of a left-hand turn because another thing that you were a significant part of, which is of course the party boys. And mm-hmm. you, you may remember there was a compilation back in the day, and this is really important to people of my vintage, Smash Hits 87. And on that cassette, there was a song called He's Gonna Step On You Again. And I think it was mm. the best song on that compilation there, and it, it really got – it was one of the compelling – one of the catalysts for me as a real young fella to get into heavy music and rock music was mm. that song there. So, so again, if you had that sort of feedback that that song in particular – for a very impressionable generation, has had an influence. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, the thing is that uh, when we were in the Party Boys, Swanee had just joined the band, and uh, Glenn A. Baker sent us a cassette because I mean the Party Boys was all about doing, uh, if you like, covers. Um, mm. uh, and in in some ways, I think Alan Lancaster and I, in a way, spoiled it because we started turning it into another band of originals, original mm. songs, <laughs> which, which actually worked really well because that album that we did, Al and I did that album and uh, that's, uh, that went through the roof. It sold, sold over 100,000 yeah. uh, copies in, in, a, in Australia and also did quite well in, in the US too, mainly because of that song, He's Going to Step on You Again. But that was, that was on this cassette and, and Al and I were driving back from uh, Wollongong uh, and at that stage, we were living next door to each other, and um, uh, we put the cassette on, and "Step on You" came up, the John Congress version, hmm. and, and I said to Al, that, "That that's a Party Boys song. I, I can hear that, you know, um, you know, the, yeah. I mean, and so when we recorded it, we actually used a drum machine uh, just to get that." Even meter and and we, uh, I called a guy called Sunil De Silva, 
And, mm. and I asked him if he'd come in and play percussion and, and I, I just said, whatever you play, you know, can you just make it all loud, soft, chit-chit, 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 you know. So he had all these wonderful instruments, yep. including a talking drum. Do-do-do-do-do. So yeah. he, I recorded 12 tracks of him and then mixed it down to stereo pair um, you know, for the, the, the low-end instruments, the top-end instruments. Al and I sang it, and then Swanee came in and sang on top of, of our vocal. So, okay. so it had that kind of group thing. Yeah. And the, one of the things that knocks me out most about that recording is Swanee's ad lib outro stuff. You know, he's going to step, he's going to step, all that stuff is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's not a song that you hear the style and the way that you guys approached it has been replicated. Is it because with all of that nuance that you just provided there? Because there's so much going on, but you really need here's the key word you've got to have an innate natural talent to do that, haven't you? You've got to be able to do that in a rehearsal room. It's not something you can do with a digital audio workstation in front of you when you're rejig everything. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, Al and I sort of had a um, uh, approach to that song. Let me see, we, we kind of worked it out. A, at home what we'd want to do. And then Paul Christie, God bless him, just um, decided that he was going to have a producer come in. And I said, well, we've got it all worked out already. We don't need a producer. You know, we're producers at, uh, anyway. And he said, oh, mm. no, I'm not having members of the band produce it. So mm. uh, so I better not name the guy, but uh, he came in and 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 it was just a mismatch like you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> We ended up. We got the end of the day, and we sacked him. And and uh, and he said, "Well, good luck, fellas." He said, "You know, uh, uh, what did he say?" He said, "When are you guys going to come to terms with with the eighties?" And, <laughs> and and I said to him, "Well, what, uh, probably about the same time you come to terms with the fact that you're no longer on the project. See you later." And <laughs> fortunately, I was backed up by everybody, including Swanee. And I think, anyway. He put a Janet Jackson song on and he said, I oh want it to sound like this. And we just went, are you kidding? And that's when he said, you know, like, you know, are you rock and rollers? When are you going to come to terms with the 80s? And mm. and uh, so we sacked him and then we did it our way and it went number one. <laughs> so <laughs> that gave us a certain amount of pleasure, I must say. There's so many That's stories incredible. like that. Yeah, there's so many stories out there like that. Richly uh, talented, experienced musicians such as yourselves uh, being told or mentored by someone who doesn't really quite get the band but is assured of their own success and they're just using you as a bit of a footnote, if, if you weigh along the way and trying to get you to shoehorn into a particular style. It's crazy that you get one of the best Australian guitarists ever to play that sort of shit. But, hey, what do I know? I'm just a musician too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so well, it's, it's all part of a what's been an amazing journey. I mean, uh, those years that I spent with uh, outside the Angels, I left the band for a while, and uh, mm. those years I spent with Alan Acosta were pretty special. And uh, very sad to, that we lost him last year. Um, he was yeah, a lovely guy. Yeah, yeah, lovely guy. Yeah. yeah. For people that will be listening that don't know, Alan Lancaster was the longtime bassist in Status Quo, who's uh, briefly mm. moved to Australia sometime in the 80s or late 70s or thereabouts. And I knew you guys were, were good mates. So what was special about Alan? Um, well, uh, musically, he was a fantastic bass player. Um, he, he, he had just attacked it. And it was interesting because... Um, so much of status quo was uh, was a shuffle feel, you know, da, 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 mm. da, right? And 
but, but we, then we, we would play a lot of, you know, straight ahead like the Angels, uh, you know, four on a floor kind of da 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 But he'd still be going da-da-da-da-da against the da 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 And it sort of worked somehow. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, they're very creative. We wrote a lot of songs together, and I think some of the songs are really good. Um and they're on that Party Boys album, which did really well. But, you know, I think in some ways it may have been a mistake to try and turn the Party Boys into a band of original, playing originals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the thing. He's a songwriter, I'm a songwriter, and you can't help but do that, you know. Agreed. Yeah, you take, you follow your muse wherever it takes you, and if it works mm. out, great. If it doesn't, will you move on to the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we, we have been, the catalyst for our conversation is that you're playing a couple of shows, so I'm going to ball bust you for a moment and ask you, first of all, why aren't you bloody playing in Queensland? Because believe me, you've got plenty of people up here that would love to see you. <laughs> yeah, we love Queensland. Um, yeah. but uh, So we're only doing a few shows. The thing is mm. that this is just kind of us having a bit of fun, but the thing is when we have fun, we still try and make it, like it's a real, you know, serious uh, project. So we we went into the studio and recorded four tracks, which I'm really proud of. Yeah. Uh, um, um, Mick Skelton, the drummer of Baby Animals, played the drums. He's wonderful. Awesome. So yes. we recorded, uh, um, sorry, uh, Night Attack, uh, Small Price to Pay, um, Don't, uh, what is it called? Moving On mm-hmm. and... A song that it's a Brewster Brothers song that we did for our Brewster Brothers album, uh, Shadows Fall, called Lives of Grace. And Lives of Grace turned out so great, so we decided to, to name the EP Lives of Grace. Um, the thing is that we've been around a long time, as you know, and, and we've got so many songs that we never get to play uh, because most of the shows that the Angels do with Dave Gleason singing. Uh, these big things, you know, like uh, Red Hot Summers and mm. big outdoor concerts, etc., where you play 50 minutes to an hour and that's it. So we've got so many songs that we just went, wouldn't it be great to just go out there and play some songs that people never hear us play? And because Dave's on the road, we decided to call it Brewster Brothers Electric and have our drummer, Nick Norton, be the front guy, as he's amazing. He's a great singer. I mean, when I first met Nick, he was uh, he had a band called Gangarai and he was the lead singer and, I, and he, he knocked me out. He's charismatic, absolutely fantastic mm. and a great singer. So um, we so that's why we're doing it. Just uh, And also uh, the two Sydney shows that are coming up at the Bridge Hotel and uh, Wickham Park, I think it is, in, in in Newcastle. My son Tom's on the drums. Mm-hmm. And Tom's not a professional musician. He works as a, a project manager for a big landscape firm in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And he had him a pair of sticks, and he might as well have been playing all the time. He's just got the most natural feel. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be on the drums in those shows. And then we've got a guy called Matt McNamee doing the Adelaide and Melbourne shows. And, yeah, you know, it's the sort of thing that you could turn it into something and, and go to Queensland, go across to Perth, et cetera, but we're not really trying to do that. We're just, we're just yeah, I mean, look, who knows? We'll see how the four shows go and we might get up, we get to Queensland. I'd like to. But then, you know, I mean, Sam, uh, uh, my son, has a, mm. has a little um, 
son now, Humphrey, my grandson, and mm. and so he's he's got a family thing going on. And you know, one one of the things I look back on, I don't have regrets, but I look back on my life for the Angels. And you, we used to go out for weeks on end, and sometimes yeah. months on end when we started touring America and stuff. And I think you know when you when you're a father of of, a, of young children, and you and you go out and tour like that, you miss something, and yeah. they miss something, and and so you know Sam loves that time off when the Angels don't play, and Dave goes out with the screaming jets. I don't know how Dave does it; he just he goes from one thing to the <laughs> other all the time. <laughs> you know, but you know he. That's his band. The Screaming Jets is his band, and he's loyal to that band, and he's loyal to us as well, and vice versa. So it's all a very healthy situation. But we just wanted to have a experience of having Nick be the front man and and sing. You know, we're going to do things like Eat City and um, Nice, uh, Don't Waste My Time, which is what a great song. I I wasn't part of recording that song, but gee, it's a great song, you know. And we'll do. I've got to get out of this place and. Mm-hmm. Dogs are talking. Let the night roll on. Uh, some songs from uh, the Two Minute Warning album, which I actually think is one of our best albums that we did with Doc. But it different wrong record company kind of didn't really set the world alight. But I think it's a great album. So we're doing Moving On and Call That Living and, and one other. Can't remember what it is now. Oh yeah, Invisible Man. We're doing those three songs from okay. from that album. So we're trying to we're trying to make sure that we don't, you know. For example, you mentioned um, face again. Well, we won't do that one. You know, that's that's for the angels. That's for that's for Dave to sing. You know. Mm. Yeah. So uh, actually, the repertoire is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to doing it because uh, there's some great songs in there. And the thing is, we've got so many fans that they're always asking for songs that we never play. So we mm. thought, well, let's. Let's do a few songs that that people do ask for. Yeah, I'm hearing you. Yeah, and it's good-natured ribbing I'm giving you about the Queensland thing. It's just it, it would be a joy to catch you guys in this sort of a format. It's, yeah. There's this uh, playing covers, as, a, as I've mentioned, that I do. I'm noticing it's not a renaissance, but the familiarity, and here's the thing, I remember being in a band, uh, like a it was a band with a female singer. Oh, I actually still work with a female singer, but this is about 10, 10 years ago or so. Mm. An 18-year-old Brit asked us for horses and Kaysan. How does an 18-year-old Brit know about horses and Kaysan? And that did extend to your music too. There's something enduring about Oz Rock. So here's my point around that. It's a bit of a longer one, but I've been wanting to ask you this for some time because you're at the forefront of the reasons, the catalyst behind why I'm mentioning this, okay? So, look, Oz Rock, it was the precursor to alternative music in the United States. People don't understand how much Oz Rock was played on college rock radio throughout the 80s in the United Mm. States. Yeah. Now, it eventually, and here's the key thing, it eventually spawned grunge. Okay, Nirvana, those guys, they're listening to metal, but they're also listening to college radio, which had a lot of Australian music on it. The church, you guys, you name it, it was all there. Now, do, do you feel like as though the Angels and indeed the Oz Rock scene in general on an international, from an international perspective, do you think we get proper acknowledgement by the, you know, those idiots at Rolling Stone, the journalists there, not all of them, I know some of them, but some of them are real fucking, you know, the hardcore lefty types who put a political spin on everything. But do you think that, that because they're doing that, they're not focusing on the music, the thing that the fans truly cherish, and they're giving you guys your just reward as as 
a global influencer in some in so many respects? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, speaking of Rolling Stone, David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine was was flying to various parts of the states to to, to watch the band play. He 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 wrote it up in Rolling Stone. He said this is the this is the next Rolling Stones. So he was that into the band. Um, and you know we were setting the world on fire in those days, but in particular um, in Los Angeles and and Seattle, Portland, that whole West Coast. Um, uh, probably not quite so much in San Francisco, but um, the th- uh, we the thing is that a lot of bands that came out of Seattle at the time, like Nirvana and of course Dave Grohl with Foo Fighters and. There are others I can't think at the moment, but we we know, you know yeah, Pearl Jam, Mike McCready's a huge fan of the Angels. Hmm. We know that Dave Grohl, or we're told that Dave Grohl came to our Paramount Theatre show in Seattle. We did two nights there and apparently he came, he was 14 years of, of age and he came with his dad and saw the Angels play then. So and I, we, I'd love to track him down and say, is that a true story? Did you see us play? Uh, I don't know, but... I know that there are bands that cite us as influencers. Guns N' Roses is the classic mm. example, you know. Like I've actually been, I've had some uh, some communication with with Slash recently, and you know, because they used to play Marseille, which is a song I wrote, "Take a Long mm. Line," which Rick wrote, and and uh, uh, watch this space because they, we they might get involved, or at least nice. Slash and maybe. Um, Izzy might get involved in Izzy. helping us celebrate. Is that Is right? It? That's magnificent. Izzy Stradlin, the, the rhythm guitarist. Yeah, well, you know, the, we, we're going to do so. I don't know what it's going to be, but next year, you know, um, it, we're celebrating 50 years, so we don't want that year to go by, you know, with with nothing, no celebration and maybe involve some people who have, have been influenced by us, who are friends of ours. We, we just... Played in in uh, New Zealand with uh, ZZ Top, Pat Benatar, and the Stone Temple Pilots. So the, mm. the two brothers in the Stone Temple Pilots have put their hand up. If if you want them to play on something, they'll do it. And they're great guys, great players. Um, now Pat Benatar has has said that she'd she'd do something. So and I'm thinking, well, wouldn't it be great to get her to sing? You know, I'm thinking, what well, what's the obvious song for Pat Benatar? Well, you could say, well, be with you. That'd work. That'd be mm-hmm. great. But then I thought, what about Mr. Damage? Can you imagine <laughs> Pat Benatar? She's fantastic, by the way. She's still got she, it. She's still got it. She's magic. And her husband, uh, Neil Giraldo, who I played golf with, he's he's incredibly talented, lovely guy. So we became friends out of that, and that's what happens out on the road. You know, you sort of make some friendships and, and um, yeah, but I, I just imagine Pat Benatar singing Mr Damage. And the reason I thought of Mr Damage is because she, they do um, Helter Skelter. Hmm. And, boy, she built that out. It's fantastic. If she can bloody no, see I don't it. know. I mean, next year, <laughs> who knows? But... Um, well, yeah, great. the thing is, the thing is that we toured America, and in particular America, we we did really well in Europe, and it, it's beyond me why our manager didn't have us continue that yeah. campaign in in Europe. It was crazy, absolutely crazy, and we played 
Paris only a few years ago, or 2015, I guess it's getting back about way now, but we went over there and we played this gig in Paris. It's a wonderful gig. There was about 200 people lined up just to have us sign things. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we turned up for a sound check. And I'm thinking, we haven't played Paris for 35 years, and these people would have been under 35 years of age. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. So, you know, we created quite an impact there. You know, Marseille was a big hit there and we never went back, you know, but we I guess our manager was focused on America and America was difficult because we tried to do it out of Australia and we'd take our own road crew and and the costs were enormous and we toured and toured and we did really well. We did a lot better than people realise. Yeah. Um, but but we didn't break wide open. And to break wide open in America, you need a lot of things that are going to go your way. I mean, I, I became friends with John Ilsley, who was the bass player for Dire Straits, and we were playing golf one day, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, when we put out the, um, I think it's the Brothers in Arms album, he mm. said it just wasn't happening in the States. It was happening everywhere else but not America. And so we, we were going to leave the, the company. I think it was Capital or something, and... and uh, he said then they'd spent $250,000 buying money for nothing up the charts and it was all over. So mm. they call that independence. You know, you spend money uh, with, you know, whining and dining and stuff, people, and, you know, without going into too many details. Uh, we didn't have that that luxury. And um, no. having said that, we still did really well. You know, the West Coast in particular, Chicago, we did really well selling out like the Park West Club, which is a great club, and the Ritz mm. in New York. And, you know, you know, it, was a, it wasn't an unsuccessful campaign, but the trouble is we were just losing money hand over fist and having young kids at the time, you know, like that's what caused the breakup with me. I mean, I, I, I was always responsible for the band's financial side and, I said to God, I said to the guys, you know, we're going to lose our houses. This is ridiculous. We can't oh, do God, this. Yeah. And so that that caused a bit of angst. <laughs> so anyway, you know, all's well that ends well, they say. Very true. Great insight into a very important part of your not just your history, but Oz Rock music history too, because there are so many bands that tried to break into the United States and uh, mm. ACDC, mate, you know, there's others in excess, ACDC in your era, but the fact that you were successful and were still losing money says how hard a gig it really was. And people don't necessarily understand that, do they? They sort of think, oh, the Angels didn't break in the United States. Wrong. You did. It just the planets didn't align. Well, yeah, that's it. You know, and, and let's face it, in, in in rock and roll, the planets have to align, you know. I mean, you know, like at our most desperate time in 1977 when it looked like you know, we probably couldn't go on because we were getting no hits. You know, radio was ignoring the singles. Uh, coming down on me, we thought was a big, big shot and radio didn't pick it up. And, um, and you know, we were driving around the, the country in my old EH Holden station wagon. And I look back on those days and I think, wow, what was fantastic, wasn't it? It was just, it was, mm. you know, the camaraderie, the, the, the fun, the, that we had was was amazing, but at the same time we weren't getting anywhere. Even though we were signed up with Harry and George at uh, Alberts and part of the Alberts stable with ACDC, etc., you still had to make your own way. And and uh, it wasn't till Take a Long Line that 
that radio did pick us up. And then, of course, the, the rest is history and the band sort of went through the roof. But hmm. um, ACDC and In Excess, you mentioned those two bands, they're both, you know, like they're actually younger than we in terms of age. And so their the, the stage of life, they could throw caution to the wind and go and live overseas. Hmm. And and we were we were starting to have kids and you know so there was to to uproot and go and move somewhere was just not not on the agenda we couldn't really do it and the thing is that Ted Albert with ACDC Ted Albert supported them uh, I don't think they were paid a lot of money but they were paid enough money to live and and so they they could go overseas they could live over there. And they could do what they did in Australia, which would be just one of the greatest bands ever, and and blow people away, and you know, um, people would go to see Aerosmith and walk away talking about ACDC. Mm. Um, well, no offence to Aerosmith, by the way, <laughs> they're a great band too. That's but true. Yeah, that's happened. It's that happened. it's true, you know, and and it, to a certain extent, that's what happened with us. We did a lot of gigs with ACDC, and we went over really well. And in some kind of way, we we almost stepped into their shoes when they went. They left. In some ways, we literally did. I bought a guitar from Malcolm and we bought all the Marshall amps. Suddenly mm. our guitar sound went from ordinary to great. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of reminiscing here, I know, but uh, the thing no, is they, they, yeah. they were amazing days, you know, absolutely amazing days. And um, uh, I don't look back on, uh, I guess, if you like, failure to to do in America what we did in Australia with regret. There's no point in regrets. I can look back on it and say, well, it was pretty stupid to leave Alberts. That was a that was a ridiculous move that mm. our manager made at the time. Just ridiculous. I mean, you know, Ted Albert supported ACDC would have supported us too. Uh, we lost our home base and, you know, we were part of a family. The Alberts stable was like a family. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that we let the family down by leaving them. It wasn't our idea, you know. We got talked into it. You've mentioned the manager a couple of times here, and these stories are again are, are as common as, as as anything else in the music industry. But was he someone who was a bit older than you guys and had told you guys that he'd been there and done it all? And because he's a bit older, you guys just felt well, we better go along with what he says, or is it something else? Um. Well, the guy's name is John Woodruff, and and I don't mind mentioning him because I'll speak to him. I'll speak about him with respect. Um, you know, I mean, when the band took off, he'd actually left the band. He was he was in Adelaide driving cabs or something. Right. Okay. Yeah. Hang on. One sec. You're right. Hey, Chris, I'm just on a, a Zoom call. Can I call you back soon? Oh, okay. I was just going to get the other. Um, reschedule for today if that's possible. Okay, I'm just talking to Andrew. Oh, you're still on that one. Okay, no, just call me after that. Yeah, I'll go, I'll call you back. Okay. All right, exactly. Bye. He's good Chris is, He's a good fella. I like him. He's a mate. Yeah, yeah I do he, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, he uh, he he gets on top of it, mate, and he uh, he organises these things. And I know it can be a bit of a thankless task, particularly with the international artists and the bloody differences in times and all the rest of it that's out there. But uh, but it's always yeah. great. I mean, he's he's the interface uh, between me and you, mate, and it's always a, a pleasure to talk to someone of your standing. That's for sure. So, look, I'll, I'll ask a couple more questions just in the interest of time um, for you. Um, no, I'll just finish I'll, what I was saying about John Woodruff. Oh, sure. Go the thing the thing is, John Woodruff. 
when when he came back into the band, I, I called him. I, I, we'd, we'd just done the stage door and the, there was a, a big crowd and I said, you know, so I called him and I said, you know what, it's happening. We're starting to take off. Come back. And he came back. And, look, he, he was he was fantastic. Um, uh, he created, de- uh, along with uh, Rod Willis and uh, Ray Hearn, he created Dirty Pool and, and you know, we started from the business end of it, we started doing door deals and making money, and 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 you know it was it was a wonderful time. I think his decision to take the band out of Alberts was crazy, um, but I don't dislike him for it. He he obviously thought that it was the right way to go, and he was mm. very charismatic. He was a bit of a father figure to us, yeah. You know, so when well, while Rick and I were or and Doc were were you know head down trying to write the best songs we could. You know, he was handling the business end, and so we we had a lot of reliance on him. And and I'm not saying that was wrong to be like that. It's just um, I think you know it's it's easy to be to be wise in hindsight. But I, I I do feel I did feel at the time I had a meeting with Harry Vander and George Young, and I I just felt terrible. I just, and they did too. You know, for us to leave Alberts, and it was just a crazy move. You know. Oh man, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we would have been, been support. Yeah. We, we'd have been playing with ACDC right around the world. You know, we did it in Australia, and and the and the crowd loved us. They loved ACDC too. What's what's wrong with that? ACDC always had that great policy that, or you know, that give the give the support band everything they want. The better they go down, the better they're going to go down. And we, we've always yeah. had that attitude too with bands that support us. <laughs> yeah, unlike yeah. the Kinks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ray, Ray Davies actually turned the PA down on us at the uh, LA Forum because he he was so paranoid about how well we were going, <laughs> which I never understood because they had the hits. We were, you know, new kids on the block kind of thing. Anyway. <laughs> Ray Davies, there's probably a bit of substance abuse there going on at the same time as well with the paranoia oh, kicking in around right. that. So, yeah. so <laughs> half of those blokes yeah. were bloody like that, weren't they? They just didn't understand or have the insight to 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 be aware of that. But um look, I'm just mindful of time for you. Believe me, I could I could keep you for another couple of hours and talk about the old days and get your insight into these things. So I know you worked with Chuck Berry. You did uh, you did some stuff with David Bowie, you actually handpicked the band as well. So people out there who are listening mm. and watching yeah. Later on, like I'm just saying, get get into what, especially because most of my audience is in the United States and the UK. So if yeah. you're not familiar with the Angels, I will actually put a song on up front if that's okay. I'll put on uh, Take a Long Line or what have you, or put on one of the classics, you know, so that people can get some insight yeah. into what we've been talking about up in advance. But, um, mate, my final question for you is, mate, when's the book coming out? Because, please, something's got to be the works of the great stories you've got. Oh, uh, we have a book out. Ah, okay. My bad. Okay, what's it called? Uh, uh, it's called the Angels. Uh, well, what is it called? <laughs> Brothers, Angels, and Demons. I think. Um, I'm just going to look it yeah. up. Okay, I'll put a link for it. Yeah. All right. I, I'm I'm a writer myself, so I've got to find this. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, it's cool. a good book. The the one mistake I think we did, well we didn't write it, but uh, I think the the one thing is that there are not enough dates you know when did this happen when did that happen um, it it's sort of chronologically pretty good but uh but it's a book yeah it's a really good book actually people love okay. it so 
And we've got a movie out now too, kicking down the door. Okay, gosh, I don't, why? Why? I just I'm obviously not connected enough for some of this stuff. Kicking down the door. Okay, I'll look at. I'll find these links and I'll put them in the show notes afterwards so people can tune into some of this stuff because I feel like you've got stories for days and they're really interesting. And as you know, people love. It's like you mentioned about France. Okay, sure, you had a hit over there with Marseille, but. Rock fans in particular, they're not stupid. We dive deep and we go to the roots of things. So you'll find that a lot of young Guns and Roses fans will find out who they're influenced by will inevitably come to you guys and Rose Tattoo. And I think that's where a lot of the association comes from and the knowing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I've been, yeah, so I like that network, you know. That's what we did, you know. You, you, I mean, I heard Peter Paul Mary sing Blowing in the Wind and I went, wow, that's great. And then I went. Hey, where'd that come from? And then I found Bob Dylan, and, and uh, that was much mm-hmm. greater. <laughs> you know, I became a huge uh, Dylan fan, still am, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I hope to see you up here, mate, sometime in the near future. It'd be great to catch up and have a beer, or if you don't drink, mate, a soft drink. But uh, either way, mate, thanks for making uh, the music that you made. Uh, I can, you know, I'm a modest drinker. I, <laughs> I usually, I, I have a... I have a glass of wine on stage when I play, but I start all the songs, so I never get a chance to drink it. So when the show's finished, the, the glass of wine's gone down by about half, and that's it. That's it for me, So, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Um, I, I kind of look after myself. I'm getting, I'm getting old, but I'm looking after myself pretty well. And, right. and uh, I just love the band. It's a really interesting band because um, we've got, my son and, and Nick Norton, who are around the 40-year age, Dave Gleason, mid-50s, and then Rick and I are now in our 70s, and somehow or other that combination is probably the happiest combination that we've ever had. There's no there's no arguments. It's, it's just wonderful. And, you know, this Bruce about this electric thing we're doing, I'm really excited about it. I'm sort of jumping out of my skin, just just really because because I can rely so much on on the musicians and and I know that you know we'll do those songs justice mm. and I mean I haven't played each city since it was a single you know but it's a good song great track yeah great <laughs> track they're all good though John let's face it all of your albums are bangers from start to finish Thank and, you very uh, much. Uh, listening to your guitar playing, any, any young guitarists out there that want to learn rock guitar 101 and they're sort of, you want to get away from the Angus and Malcolm thing because let's face it, it's been done to death. Listen listen to what John's done because you've written part of that book, mate. You've certainly, oh. in, the great, in the great big book of rock guitar, mate, you've at least got a couple of paragraphs somewhere in amongst <laughs> the chapters there. So, Well, that's very kind of you. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a rhythm guitar player and I love being a rhythm guitar player. Rick mm. said recently to our friend Peter Hanley, he said, I hate John. And he said, why? He said, because when we go out on the road, just, John just tunes his guitar, walks on stage and plays, and he plays it all all perfectly. He said, <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to rehearse for three weeks before we go. <laughs> I know the feeling on that front, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, you, you want to, yeah, I can tell, I can tell it's a natural thing for you. Uh, it's just something that happens, like you're saying, but it's clearly gone through to your son as well. You talk about that natural, it's about the rhythm. Yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. A, if you're right hand, it's the right hand thing. You yeah, know, it's, it um, yeah. you know, with the picking finger, it's not really the, he thinks it's about if you're right handed, things about the left hand. It's not, it's about this one here. Even the way, where's my pick? Where is it? How far you hold it in and down and the gauge using all of that stuff. It's all part of the, the, the mechanics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's uh, and at the end of the day, you, 
Yes, you walk onto a stage. I, I go 20 years younger when I stand on stage with the Angels or, or the Brewster Brothers Electric for that matter. We've already done one show and it was great. But, um, uh, yeah, I wake up the next morning and I'm back to uh, 20 years older again. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm doing all right. You're doing it's lovely to talk right. to you, Andrew. Great. It's been an absolute pleasure, John. Yeah, I do hope we can meet one day and uh, yeah, share yeah. that and have that beer. So yeah, but thanks for doing what you've been doing, mate. It's uh, it's very meaningful and you've made a very positive impact on a lot of people's lives. That's very kind of you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, mate. No worries. All the best and everything, and uh, catch up soon. Okay. Cheers. Thanks, Bye. mate. Catch up. Cheers. Well, there he is, ladies and gents, John Brewster. What a fantastic fella. I was talking to my drummer last night and he mentioned, that, <laughs> here we go, he mentioned that he'd met all of the members of the Angels and uh, the other guys wouldn't give him more than two words, except for John. John did. John was quite happy to have a chat to him. It was many years ago when that happened and John just seems like an awesome fella, very well-rounded guy and one of those guys that uh, you're just glad success in some way happened for. Killer guitarist too. Okay, so that's that. And if you like that conversation, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. And if you like listening, maybe you like reading because I have written a book all about the podcast, Scars and Guitars Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. I guess this is the beyond part, given it's right into Oz Rock territory. John might even feature in my next book, actually. That's a good idea. Hmm. Look, you can click on the link in the banner and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. You can download a sample and if you do complete the purchase after you've tried before you buy it, please do hit me up because I want to thank you personally. And on that note, here's some more information about the book. But before we get to that, I need to bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it is a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, 
then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, I just I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldina. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded and, and he was into having his, his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favorite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.